Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Hello, my friends. Are you there? Can you hear me? Oh, good, good. So good to see you. It's such an honor to be with you today. I want you to know we were just gifted uh, by a member of the fellowship this new equipment for our studio. So instead of seeing that boring background, you can see this glorious mountain right behind me. I don't know if you can see, that's our spiritual retreat center that you're all going to come to. That's my house. That's Jeremy's house. That's our house of prayer. I'm sure that I'm not pointing to the right thing. But this is definitely a better background, and that's really exciting. Anyways, I really can't wait for you all to come out and experience it for yourselves. I really believe that that day will come. Uh, So that's exciting. And it's also exciting for me to be with you again. And I really appreciate the opportunity. Believe me. It's not something that I take for granted. And I'm just, I'm really grateful. I just want to say now a little house cleaning in order. I'm really grateful for your feedback and how I can make it better, how Jeremy can make it better, both my personal teaching as well as the fellowship. Uh, I know in my heart still that this is going to grow and evolve into something even more beautiful than it is now. So uh, we're just grateful for your feedback and um and share ideas. Don't worry, it will not hurt my feelings. I want to hear everything you have to say. Okay, so let's start with a little tefillah, a little prayer to put us in the right place. Hashem, Abba, thank you for the opportunity to lead this session today. Please, please allow the words from my heart to come from deep within me and to penetrate the hearts of my beloved friends in the fellowship. Hashem, I'm humbled to be able to learn with them and to connect with them and to be in the presence, even though it's the virtual presence of such holy people. May it be in each other's physical presence soon. They're so humble and they're so sweet. And we're all coming together with the unified purpose of coming close to you and serving you in truth. Thank you for blessing them and guarding them and protecting them. Please, Hashem, let the words of our mouths and the feelings in our hearts be a fragrant scent in which you find favor, and let this fellowship be a source of light and godliness for the world. Amen. Okay, so it's so good to be back with you. You know, I thought I would start this week, sometimes I dive right into the Parsha, but I thought I would start this week by giving a little context and background as to where we find ourselves on the Jewish calendar. Because as always, the Torah portion of the week, it shines this light of illumination and understanding not only to where we are in the calendar, but to our particular current events that are happening in the world and in our lives and the world around us. I remember actually um, a friend of mine, he was a congregational community rabbi, and he told me about what the experience can be like. He told me that on one single day, uh, he performed a circumcision in the morning, officiated a funeral for someone in the afternoon, and, um, and in the w- evening, he performed a wedding. Before I go on, can you hear me? Can all of you hear me? Shake your heads because I'm looking at all of you. Okay, I got some messages that it may not be clear. Okay, so anyways, this rabbi, he was telling me how taxing and trying it is to be truly present, to feel the joy of birth, the grief and loss of burying not only a congregant but one of his friends, and then celebrate the hope and the happiness of marriage and the birth of an entire family. So that emotional roller coaster is part and parcel of what it is to be a Jew in Israel, to be someone who follows and lives by the Torah. You know, stoicism is where you disconnect yourself and you don't feel pain 
and you don't feel pleasure and you just disconnect, but that's not what our walk with God is really about. And anyways, nowhere is this truth of this emotional roller coaster more pronounced than this week as we approach Yom Hazikaron, Israel's Memorial Day, in which we remember the holy soldiers who lost their lives in the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. They lost their lives in the wars of Israel, in the battles of Israel. And let me tell you, I have yet to meet a person in this country who has not suffered loss, whether family or friends, in the journey that we've taken to return to our land. I actually have a speech that I gave a group of American Jews on Yom Hazikaron not long ago. And I'm, I'm planning, a, with, with your blessing, I want to send it all to you this coming Wednesday uh, when actually Yom Hazikaron Memorial Day falls out. It may be one of the most powerful speeches I've ever given where I go in a little bit to my personal loss. But I didn't want to use this uh, session with you right now to talk about my personal loss. I wanted to talk about something a little bit greater than that. Because for now, there, there are three things that the sages tell us you acquire through pain. Torah, the world to come, and the land of Israel. And while the return of the nation of Israel to the land of Israel has been glorious and prophetic, we've also experienced very real pain. Real blood, real tears, there's real widows and real orphans. I remember one Yom Hazikaron, I don't remember how long ago it was, I joined the tens of thousands of Israelis who converged upon Mount Herzl Military Cemetery, Har Herzl, and I visited my friends that I lost. I always started at the grave of Mikey Levine, who was born in Philadelphia, but I can talk to you about him another time. But it was that Yom Hazikaron, I went around and I was looking at different graves, at the names and the dates, and for a moment I started doing the math. And I was taken aback by how many 15 and 16 year olds lost their lives in the War of Independence. Because as a nation, we didn't have the luxury of having a draft age limit. We were fighting for our very survival. And that meant that anyone, everyone who could pick up a weapon and fight was needed. But they didn't fight because they were needed. They fought willingly and joyfully and voluntarily, even gratefully. Grateful that they were able to fight and even die for the historic and prophetic return to the land rather than die as helpless victims in the gas chambers of Auschwitz. I remember even, you know, Jeremy was my commander in the army. We were in Lebanon and Hebron and in Gaza, and I really felt no fear. I didn't because I said, even if I give my life at this moment, it would be worth it. There could be no, no greater privilege. It was only when I went back to America that I felt fear. And indeed, as many of you know, I was actually stabbed in the back walking down the street in New York. And that's when I felt fear. For what? For what would that be? And so these soldiers were, were honored to fight. And there's so many stories which we could share about those very soldiers, the 15 and 16-year-olds. But we don't only commemorate and mourn the soldiers that died, but every person that was murdered by terrorists. Because there's an implicit recognition that every single Jew that lives in the land of Israel, cast their lot with the fate of the nation and imbued their life with meaning and purpose. And, and that purpose, that meaning, that mission is the biblical return of the Jewish people to our land. Our enemies don't differentiate between soldiers and civilians when it comes to their murderous desires, and neither should we. On Yom Hazikron, we mourn everyone who gave their lives because they were Jews. The word is Al-Kidush Hashem to sanctify God's name. When you die for being a Jew, then you die al-Kiddush Hashem for sanctifying God's name. 
And then, when we're in that depth of those lows, in one moment's time, we transition as a nation from a state of this searing pain and grief and mourning to joy and happiness and elation and celebration as we celebrate Yom Ha'atzmaut Independence Day, in which after 2,000 years, we became a state, a Jewish state in our land. Every Shabbat, you know, synagogues around the world, they pray for the welfare of whatever nation they're residing in at the time in the exile. And then they pray for the state of Israel. And in that prayer, Israel is referred to as Reshit Smichat Gulatenu, the first flowering of our redemption. Reshit Smichat Gulatenu. And that is what we're thanking Hashem for in Yom Ma'ut, for the first flowering of our redemption. Not the complete redemption, for that occurs when the exiles are ingathered and the temple is rebuilt. But the state is unquestionably the first flowering of that redemption. And that is what we're celebrating this Thursday on Yom Ma'ut, which is why I want to take this opportunity to introduce my beloved Rebbe, my best friend, Jeremy Gimpel, who will share an unbelievable teaching that will change the way you look at Yom Ma'ut forever. Take it, Jeremy. Shalom fellowship. It's great to be together again this week. You know, this week is a big week. We're celebrating Israel's Memorial Day, and then right after that, Israel Independence Day. And that holiday is probably one of the greatest gifts we've been given in the last 2,000 years. You know, because we're sort of given the world, and the world has endless possibilities, endless interpretations. We just look at it, it's just out there. And then in comes the Torah, and in comes the Bible, and it gives us the backstory, the narrative of what's going on in this world. And for years, there's just living by faith that maybe the visions of the prophets, maybe they're true, maybe one day they'll come to be realized. Maybe those are just analogies for something that's happening on the inside of men. And then all of a sudden, the narrative world of the Bible meets the reality of the objective world and the state of Israel was born. And prophecy met reality. And here now in Israel, we're living inside this prophetic movement. We're living inside the destiny that's unfolding. Just to think about where we were 80 years ago and where we are today is astounding. And so in Israel's 70th anniversary, I made this video. And it's just as relevant now as it was then. But it sort of places Israel's independence day in the proper context of the incredible story of the nation of Israel. And what started off with the story of Abraham just the greatest story humanity has ever told. And so I hope you enjoy this video and I hope it makes your Independence Day that much more meaningful. And so here you go. This year we celebrate 70 years the reestablishment of our beloved country Israel. 70 years is monumental, for a man's days are 70 years on earth. For the first time in 2,000 years, a Jew could be born in the land of Israel, live a full life, die in the land of Israel, free, never knowing the exile. This year we celebrate 1948. 1,948 years ago, the Roman Empire destroyed our lives. 
They burned and demolished our temple and exiled the Jews from Jerusalem, all while gloating their vicious imperial conquest and victory. The Jews rebelled and fought valiantly for their freedom. The rebellion was crushed, and the Jewish people found themselves homeless, helpless, and lost for centuries upon centuries. The long and bitter Jewish exile reached the darkest time in human history. As we celebrate 70 years, we must remember where we were only 74 years ago. And I saw a great open space with dry bones. Can these bones live? Only you know. After the UN voted in favor of the partition plan on May 14, 1948, the fifth of ER, the British mandate was due to expire. The year was fraught with countless dangers, escalating Arab violence across the land of Israel, combined with threats of annihilation from every bordering country. American President Harry Truman, in a power play against Russia, began to pressure the United Nations to reject the partition plan and snuff out Israel's hope for independence. The generals of the Haganah and Palmach stood together opposing Ben-Gurion's plan to declare a state. On May 13th, the eve of the Declaration of Independence, General George Marshall, then Secretary of State of the United States, sent Ben-Gurion a brutal ultimatum, demanding the postponement of the Declaration of Independence. Marshall, together with the Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal, imposed a military embargo. They threatened that Ben-Gurion's Declaration of Independence would trigger a regional war, which would doom the Jewish people to a second Holocaust in less than 10 years and the United States would not provide any assistance to the Jews. Intel arrived that Britain had supplied arms to Egypt, Jordan, and Iraq, preparing them for the attack. The Palmach force of the Haganah numbered only 300. They had almost no equipment and no uniforms. Only half the men in each unit had guns. All of the freedom fighters of Israel, the Haganah, Etzel, and Lehi together, numbered only a few thousand. On the eve of the declaration, Israel's army was ill-equipped, unorganized, with no tanks, no real air force, and no battle plan against five professional armies, trained and funded by the British. How could the Jews defend themselves? Standing alone against Israel's top military and political ranks, betrayed, isolated, and threatened by the international community, including the United States, with Arab armies invading from every front, it was now, or maybe never, Under extraordinary pressure, a self-proclaimed secular Zionist, David Ben-Gurion, was overcome, possessed with a Ruach Gvura, a courageous spirit of biblical proportions. And just like that, 2,000 years of exile came to an end. 1,948 years ago, Jerusalem was destroyed. We are celebrating the most legendary comeback story in human history. Can these bones live? Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. Thus says the Lord Hashem, I'm going to open your graves and lift you out of your graves, my people, and bring you to the land of Israel. 
From dry bones and ashes, total despair and desperation, Israel was resurrected from the dead and new life was breathed into the Jewish people. Seventy years ago, there were 600,000 Jews in Israel. Today, there are over 6.5 million from over 100 countries. In 70 years, Israel went from having one asphalt road to building Ben-Gurion International Airport, some of the best hospitals in the world, and built more roads and infrastructure per capita and faster than any other place on the planet. Israel has transformed a barren, desolate, non-productive land into one of the most powerful economies in the world. There are more Torah institutions and more Jewish learning in the land of Israel than any other time in Jewish history. From a group of underground and underarmed freedom fighters, the IDF has emerged as one of the most respected militaries in the world. The number 70 is represented in Hebrew by the letter Ein, which also means I. For 1,948 years, the Jewish people have been praying, May our eyes see your return to Zion. We're not praying that one day we hope to see your return to Zion. Let our eyes see that it's already happening right now. Thank you, Jeremy. That was really, really beautiful. I mean, it really is the most incredible comeback story in human history. And by the way, Jeremy also came in and fixed the audio. So if you hear me better, give me a thumbs up. Cal, Ardell, you can hear me? Yeah, okay. So, you know, I, I know it's a miracle. We read about it, we know about it, we know the history, but seeing those images that Jeremy shared, it really brings it back to life. That video is super powerful, Jeremy. Thank you so much. Now, I don't believe it's a coincidence that Hashem had us read this week's Torah portion before these two powerful days, because this week's Parsha delves into concepts and ideas which, if they are properly internalized, allow us to really fully experience the unbelievable joy and dedication that came with the tabernacle. Uh, you know, it, but this this joy was so abruptly interrupted with the devastating trauma of the deaths of the two holy sons of Aaron, Nadav and Avihu. Just this week, we celebrate the establishment of Israel, and uh, and immediately we're going right into this joy from this devastation, just like what happened at the dedication of the tabernacle. Here, let me try to paint a picture for you. The Jewish people had been through a roller coaster unlike any that I can imagine. The only generation that I think comes close would be my grandparents' generation. For example, my wife Shana's grandmother went from suffering the unimaginable evils of Auschwitz, of having much of her family murdered in the Holocaust, to witnessing the establishment of the state of Israel before her eyes in a war that defied the natural order, as you just saw. She went from all of that all the way to sitting on the balcony of her granddaughter's home on the Judean frontier, overlooking her vineyards, her olive groves, and her date trees. I still remember her eyes filling with tears. I can only imagine what those eyes had seen. And that's the only generation that I think comes close to experiencing what the generation of the Exodus 
experienced in their lives. You see, the generation of the Exodus was born into a deeply entrenched, hundreds of years old, multi-generational slavery. And then before their eyes, they saw the most powerful empire in the world crumble under 10 miraculous plagues that were inflicted upon them by the God of Israel. And then as they were yet again on the verge of destruction, the waters parted for them to pass through on dry land, followed immediately by those very waters converging on the Egyptian army and destroying them all. They then turned around and looked forward and found themselves in an uncharted path to an unknown location, exposed to the elements and surrounded by enemies and armies that were threatening their very existence. Their leader and their savior, Moshe, went up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And because of their mistaken calculation and their confusion and their fear, they built the golden calf. I'm really bringing it all together. Uh, and, uh, and this, of course, led to a devastating plague and a horrific shame at their sin and their failure. And now they finally had a chance at redemption, at having clear proof that the divine presence was truly among them. That's what the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was going to represent. They were going to be able to see it and feel it. Think about the suspense. Think about that anticipation. For seven days, Aaron and his sons were told to remain at the tent of meeting while Moshe erected the tabernacle, performed the service, disassembled the tabernacle when the service was done. It was almost like, I picture it like rehearsals like preparations for the greatest ceremony of the generation, perhaps the greatest ceremony of all time. And after seven days, on the eighth day, the moment had come. Moshe sanctified the Kohanim and he erected the tabernacle, but this time permanently. And from that moment onwards, only the Kohanim, the priests, were able to perform the tabernacle service. So eighth day, the eighth day, the moment had arrived. The people were finally going to be able to believe in their hearts and see with their eyes that they were forgiven and that God's presence would dwell amongst them. It must have been hard for them to believe that the God of Israel could be so compassionate and forgiving to love them again and dwell amongst them. But it wasn't only hard for them to believe it. It was hard for Aaron, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest himself, to believe such a thing. As a matter of fact, in verse 7, we read, Vayomer Moshe el Aharon, krav el hamizbeach, vaase et chatatcha veolatcha. Moshe said to Aaron, Come near, come near to the altar and perform the service of your sin offering and your elevation offering and provide atonement for them, as Hashem had commanded. Now Rashi explains that Moshe needed to say to Aaron, Come near, because Aaron was hesitant to even approach the altar because he felt ashamed and unworthy of such a task. I can tell you, I identify. I often feel unworthy to be here with all of you. Honestly, I'm speaking my heart. There's so many rabbis that are wiser and holier than I. And, uh, and I think Aaron felt that way too. He felt ashamed and unworthy. And particularly because of his role in the golden calf, a sin that I don't think he ever really forgave himself for. So our sages say that Hashem despises haughtiness and that it was because of this attribute of shame, that Aaron was the perfect choice. And that it was particularly because of his part in the sin of the golden calf, that Aaron's personal sacrifice, the one that he sacrificed for himself that day, was, out of all animals, a calf. 
to allude to the golden calf which haunted him for his entire life. So Aaron and his sons slaughtered the offerings. They performed the service perfectly and wholeheartedly as the entire nation watched with absolute captivation and hopefulness. At this point, Aaron, Aaron was so overcome with an overwhelming love for the people and his desire to bless them was so intense that he raised his hands toward the people and blessed them, right? Exactly like this, which by the way, is the reason the Kohanim raised their hands and blessed the people until this very day. We sort of take it for granted, but it was that what he did right there in raising his hands that, that set the groundwork for the Kohanim today. And he blessed them for the very first time with the Aaronic blessing. The, the same blessing, my friends, which we bless you with at the end of our fellowships, and I'm so eager to do again. And there was just so much joy and healing and love and sanctity that filled the air. Then in verse 24, we read, esh Hashem hamizbeach. And a fire came forth from before Hashem and consumed upon the altar the elevation offering and the fats, and the people saw and sang, and a glad song uh, fell upon, and they fell upon their faces. So the Sifra teaches us that this fire that says, the fire that comes from before Hashem, the fire came down like a pillar from heaven to the earth, and it went directly into the Holy of Holies. And from there, it emanated out onto the altars, causing the incense and the sacrificial parts to go up in a pillar of smoke back to heaven. I mean, it wasn't just a bonfire. This was clearly divinely orchestrated. And, and the Egel ben Bakar, that calf that Aaron sanctified, was consumed in its entirety. Even its hide, our sages tell us. Usually that's not consumed. It was consumed in its entirety as a message from God to both Aaron and the Jewish people that the great sin from which they had suffered, the golden calf had been forgiven. The people were experiencing the greatest joy, most probably, I imagine, in their entire lives, possibly even more than the Exodus itself, because while the miracles of the Exodus happened to them, this was the tabernacle that they built. A relationship with the divine was being born, and it was through their actions, through their efforts, and it was such joy. And at that moment, the sons of Aaron Nadav and Avihu took their incense pans. Here, let's look inside. Leviticus 10.1. Vayikhu b'nei Aharon, Nadav Avihu, ish machtato, v'inu bahem esh. The sons of Aaron, Nadav and Avihu, each took his fire pan. They put fire on them and they placed incense upon it. And they brought before Hashem an alien fire that he had not commanded them. A fire came forth from, from before Hashem and consumed them, and they died before Hashem. Can you imagine? In one moment, the nation was plunged from ecstatic joy to devastating trauma, as the two holy, cherished, and beloved sons of Aaron had their souls consumed within them with divine fire, leaving them lying dead by the altar of the tabernacle. Okay. Now, to even start to understand the depth and the power of what happened here, to even begin to learn the lessons for our lives in which the Torah is telling us, I believe we have to start by understanding why the tabernacle had to be consecrated on the eighth day. 
So let's start by taking a brief look at the significance of the number eight. But to understand the significance of the number eight, we have to start by looking at the significance of the number seven. Most obviously, as we all know, the world was created in seven days. Forgive me. The world was created in seven days. Seven represents the natural order of things. A marriage is celebrated with Sheva Brachot, seven blessings recited for seven days following the marriage. After the death of a loved one, I don't know if you've heard this term before, but the family sits Shiva from Sheva, mourning. They have seven days of mourning. Not only in our weeks, but our years, we have six years followed by the Shemitah, the sabbatical in which the land remains fallow and untouched on the seventh year, which by the way, is this coming year. We're definitely going to have to do a fellowship on what that actually means, the, the sabbatical year. The mystics even tell us that human history is comprised, comprised of a seven millennia week consisting of 6,000 years of human history and human assertion in the world, followed by the seventh millennia, which is Holy Shabbat and rest, the era of Mashiach. But I don't want to get into that right now. I know I've been laying the Mashiach thing and my whole journey with Mashiach on very quick. So if seven represents the natural cycle, then what does eight represent? Well, to oversimplify it for a moment, eight represents transcendence beyond nature, that which is beyond the natural order. So let's go a little deeper. And to do so, we have to go back to the beginning of creation. The world was tohu vavohu. It was a chaotic void, as Bereshi tells us. And then creation began, and God began to create domains and distinctions and divisions. Light was separated from darkness. The water above was separated from the water below. The sea separated from the land, and the heavens were populated with the stars and the moon and the sun. And then the skies were filled with birds. The ocean were filled with fish. The land was filled with animals. And in the final act of creation, what happened? The magnum opus of Hashem, God created mankind. Now, while the sages of Israel expound the following idea, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, I'm, sh I'm sure you're shocked that I would quote him, but he's just so my Rebbe of Rebbe's lately. He articulated it with such beauty. Mankind was created at the end of the sixth day, right there in the heart of the Garden of Eden in paradise. And within that garden, God placed the Etz Hada'at, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God told Adam and Eve that there was one commandment that they had to keep, not to eat from the Etzadat. They had one job. And on that very day, they violated the one divine directive that they were given and they were banished to be exiled from the garden to suffer childbirth and death and all the consequences which we know about. Now, here's the teaching, my friends. The sages tell us that God delayed their actual expulsion from the garden and allowed them to stay for one more day. And what was that day? That day was the seventh day. That was the Shabbat, the day God ceased his creation. Or as we discussed in a prior fellowship, God created one last thing. He created rest. On the seventh day, he showed that there are limits and boundaries to creation. And just as God rested on the seventh day, so do we. And so did Adam and Eve. On the first Shabbat of creation, they rested in the Garden of Eden. Now, my friends, I was going to connect here this entire world. I spent hours writing this about the oral Torah because I'm so impressed with all of you that 
you're able to come from different places and, and still hear what we have to say as religious Jews and not say, I don't believe in this, I don't believe in that. You just have such faith in your ability to decipher the distinctions between truth and falsehood. Um, and, and so we're holding in different places. But just for the moment, if you could just take those concerns and suspend them just for a moment, because this teaching is just too beautiful. So here, Rabbi Sachs brought a source that I had never seen from the Midrash, which tells us what happened when Shabbat ended. With the going out of Shabbat, the celestial light began to fade. Adam was afraid that the serpent would attack him in the dark. Therefore, God illuminated his understanding, and he learned to rub two stones together and produce light for his needs. That's from the Midrash. And this is one of the reasons the rabbi tell us that we light the Havdalah candle and perform this powerfully beautiful Havdalah ceremony at the end of Shabbat to commemorate that the first fire that God taught Adam how to kindle as the very first thing that happened on the eighth day. Havdalah is such a beautiful experience, particularly with Jeremy and Tehillah and their children. I simply cannot wait for you all to be there, be here in Israel with us and experience it with us. Uh, together. And actually, I just thought as the fellowship was about to start, that it may be a good opportunity, if it's okay with you, just for me to read to you in English what the words of the Havdalah ceremony are, because they're really significant here. Is that okay? Shake your heads. Yes. Okay, thank you. So it starts with, uh, I'll try to sing the first sentence. I can't even sing. Jeremy, you should really come in and sing right now. I, I do sing it and, it, and it pulls out okay, but indeed, God is my deliverance. I'm confident and shall not fear, for the Lord is my strength and my song, and he's been a help for me. You shall draw water from the joy, from the wellsprings of deliverance. Deliverance is the Lord's. May your blessing be upon your people forever. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our everlasting stronghold. Lord of hosts, happy is the man who trusts in you. Lord, deliver us. May the king answer us on the day that we call. And then everybody says together, for the Jews, there was light and joy, gladness and honor. So let it be with us. And then we pick up the, 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 the wine goblet and we say, I will raise the cup of deliverance and invoke the name of the Lord. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, king of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. And then we drink the wine. And then we have these fragrant spices. And we say, blessed are you, Lord, of our God, king of the universe, who creates various kinds of spices, and we smell these delicious spices, so we bring that sweetness into the week with us. And then we say, blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who creates the light of the fire, and we put our hands up and look at our, the fire as it reflects off our fingernails, and that's an entirely new, different mystical teaching. And then the final blessing, blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who makes a distinction between the sacred and profane, between light and darkness, between Israel and the nations, between the seventh day and the six work days. Blessed are you, are you, Lord, who makes a distinction between sacred and profane. And that's what the Havdalah was about. So consider now the difference between the light of the first day, when God said, Vayahi or, let there be light, and the light on the eighth day, by which God taught Adam how to kindle. The light of the first day is the light that God created on his own for mankind. The light of the eighth day was the light that God taught Adam through divine inspiration how to ignite, how to kindle.
The light of the eighth day was created by Adam in partnership with God, with which he was able to illuminate the world. And that is the secret of the number eight. The number eight is not only transcending nature, but transcending nature in the most unimaginable, unfathomable way possible. Transcending nature by partnering with God in creation. Even this, think about a brit milah, a circumcision, the ceremony in which a young man has his foreskin removed and he's brought into the Abrahamic covenant. When does this happen? On the eighth day. Because we know that when that young Jew enters the world, he enters it, our sages tell us, incomplete. It's up to his parents on the eighth transcendent day to partner with God to complete creation. And this is why our sages tell us that the joy God felt at the dedication of the tabernacle was so great that its only equivalent was the joy that he felt at the creation of the world. Because of the intrinsic connection between the dedication of the tabernacle and the creation of the world, which if you had to put it as simply as possible as this, the world was created by God to make a home for mankind. And the tabernacle was created by mankind to make a home for God. It had to be done on the eighth day, because on the eighth day, man can transcend nature by partnering with God in creation itself. But it's a partnership. And perhaps a better word would be a relationship. A relationship can be complicated and challenging. A relationship, by definition, requires constraining oneself to make room for the other. Relationships have boundaries. At least, at least healthy relationships have boundaries. I remember early on in, uh, in our marriage, Shana and I read a book that really had a profound impact. It was called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Have you guys heard of it? Shake your heads yet? Nope. Okay, well, I guess a lot of you have. Anyways, it was a powerful book for me, and it introduced this idea that different people have different ways that they like to receive love. And, uh, and here are the five ways that the book shares. I'm sure there's others, but this is how they broke it down. Number one, acts of service for each other. Number two, words of affection and affirmation for each other. Number three, quality time together. Number four, receiving gifts. And number five, physical touch. And what happens naturally, the book teaches, is that people tend to express love in the same ways that they like to receive it. But most of the time, that doesn't work because often the person you're in the relationship with doesn't like to receive love in all the same ways you do. So this book gave us the opportunity to express our love for each other uh, in ways that we want to receive the love. It, it allowed us to have the opportunity to express our love in the way that the other wanted to receive it. Just the other day, Shana actually, uh, she gently pointed out to me that I was making a similar mistake with Dvash. You know, my daughter Dvash, every time I see our delicious little girl, I would just smother her with hugs and kisses. And Shana saw that often this was overwhelming for little Dvash. And she suggested that instead of this approach, I should join her with whatever she's doing at the time. Whether, maybe this sounds obvious to you, but for me, I just could not constrain myself. It never struck me. And she said I should just join her, whether playing with dolls or puppets or crawling through her little tunnel. Um, I should meet her where she is at and connect with her there. 
And that's exactly what I've been doing. And it's made a world of difference uh, in my relationship with her. I can tell I, I play with her. And in the midst of that play, that's when I just steal kisses here and there when she's not looking. And since Hashem created Adam and Eve in the garden, in his desire to have the most loving and beautiful relationship with us, he created boundaries. The very first thing that God did when he put Adam and Eve in the garden was he put up a boundary, a distinction. Everything in the garden was theirs to enjoy other than one thing, the Etz Hadat, the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And on that very day, as we discussed earlier, they violated the commandment. Now, in a past fellowship, we discussed the motivation that our sages share about why Adam and Eve ate from the tree. But because of its relevance, I'm going to briefly share it again, even though I'm sure many of you remember it. Our sages teach us that Adam was walking with God in, in a state of prophetic bliss and love, and that Adam felt unworthy. He felt that he was eating the lechem busha, the bread of shame. He felt that he was receiving this unbelievable goodness and that he did nothing to deserve it. So what did he decide to do? He decided that if he ate from the forbidden tree, then the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, which was external to him at the time, would be so strongly infused within him that he, out of his love for God, and through his own effort, would be able to fight it and overcome that evil inclination in order to serve God. It's a beautiful thought, and it's a holy motivation, but that's not what Hashem requested. That's not what Hashem's love language was. And Adam and Eve were chastised and expelled from the garden. Now fast forward to Nadava Navihu. They were in the middle of the most spiritually charged, transcendent experience imaginable. The bliss of divine closeness was overwhelming. So overwhelming that they wanted to express their own personal spontaneous love for God. And so they grabbed their fire pans and their incense and they brought it before God in their own way. Perhaps it was really a very beautiful way. I'm sure it was, but it's not the way that God expressed that he wanted it. And so they were consumed by divine fire. So like Adam, their intentions were holy. Their hearts were filled with love and desire to serve. But like Adam, they violated the boundaries and the distinction that Hashem clearly expressed are the way that he desires to have a relationship with them and with us. This impulse to serve Hashem in our own spontaneous way that we feel most authentically expresses ourselves, even if it's in contradiction to the way Hashem has expressed it to us, is one of the deepest and most primal impulses that we face, which makes sense because after all, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Rav Yaakov Nagen, he points out that the Tanakh shows us that the only sin that the Jewish people never fully overcame was these private altars built in high places on which they brought burnt offerings to God. They sacrificed on these private altars despite the explicit prohibition against sacrificing outside the temple. It may be hard to wrap our minds around today, but in those days, the desire to bring burnt offerings to God was so overwhelming that they would violate God's own command to express their love for him. And so let's ask ourselves, all of these things considered, what is Hashem's love language? Well, for one, obedience. Consider the last words that King Solomon expressed in Kohelet, in Ecclesiastes. Sof davar hakol nishma et Elohim yira ve'et mitzvotav shmor kizek kol ha'adam. The end of the matter 
everything having been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the entirety of man. That's what it says in Ecclesiastes. After think about after 12 chapters of questions about the purpose of life in man, that is the final conclusion that King Solomon, the wisest of all men, came to. Or consider the words with which Samuel rebuked King Saul when Saul disobeyed the words of Hashem by letting the Amalekite king Agav and his livestock live despite the explicit commandment not to let anything live. Vayomer Shmuel, hachafetz lahashem be'olotus vachim kishmoa bekol Hashem. Samuel said, does Hashem delight in elevation offerings and feast offerings as in obedience to the voice of Hashem? Behold, to obey is better than a choice offering, to be attentive better than fatted rams. Hashem's wisdom, it just so far surpasses our own, and he desires to ha- for us to have humble enough hearts to obey his words and his commands, to honor the world he created and the distinctions that he made, because we see throughout the, cor- the Torah, including in this portion itself, that honoring these distinctions is what it means to be holy. Because often people translate the word kadosh to mean holy, yet in reality, a better definition would be different or separate or distinct. To be kadosh means to be set apart. Adam did not honor the distinction of the tree of knowledge from all the other trees. Nadav and Avihu did not honor their own distinction to offer the sacrifices with the exact painstaking details that Hashem commanded them through Moshe. They didn't offer honor even the distinction of their very identities. At that moment, they behaved much more like, like prophets than priests, for prophets are driven by a divine spirit which moves them to act spontaneously, to follow their hearts, which Hashem fills with a spirit of passion. And this changes with time, often from moment to moment. Perhaps they looked at their uncle Moshe, the ultimate prophet, whose actions were often driven with impulse and with passion, the throwing down of the, of the tablets, and they sought to emulate him. But they were not the sons of Moshe, they were the sons of Aaron. They were priests whose task is detailed and meticulous and prescribed according to a certain order. They didn't honor the distinction of their role. They were Kohanim, they were priests, they weren't prophets. And I believe that's why it's not a coincidence that in this very portion, immediately following the death of Nadav and Avihu, the Torah delves into a world of distinctions, albeit it's on a dietary level. The laws of Kashrut, the distinctions that determine what is kosher and what's not. So Rabbi Sachs points out here that even within the laws of Kashrut, which we're not supposed to prescribe our own intellectual understanding to. It's what God determines is tahor and tameh, is pure and impure. And when we eat it, that's what happens to our very bodies. And you can see this, this principle of distinctions exemplified in the kashrut in the animals that are kosher and that they conform to a divine order. They're animals that have completely split hooves and chew their cud. That's what a kosher animal is. They don't hunt or consume other animals of other species. Even to the fish, those fish that have a very clear structure themselves defined by fins and scales, 
not the amphibians who occupy the water and the sea at different points in their lives, lacking clear boundaries. It's the fish that have clear borders and boundaries. Even, you know, in planting my garden at the farm, the Torah forbids planting two different types of plants together as they may cross pollinate and create a hybrid between them. We had to measure, Shane and I sat there with the ruler and we measured the distance between the different plants and the different trees to ensure that there was 15 centimeters between them to ensure that this crossover wouldn't happen. Grafting is strictly forbidden. So, and, and it's not only forbidden in our gardens, in our vineyards, but in our livestock and amongst our animals as well. We're not allowed to breed dogs and wolves. We're not allowed to breed horses and donkeys. People breed horses and donkeys, as many of you know, to make mules. But Jews are not allowed to do such a thing. This is a violation and a disrespect of the order of the world that Hashem made, at least for us. And to be holy, we need to honor and respect the boundaries that Hashem made in nature. And so now, as we're returning to the land and we're becoming an agricultural society, we're once again becoming sensitive and more aware to these complex sets of laws. Even in the coming year, we're going to need to honor this distinction, as I said before, between the six years of work and the sabbatical Shemitah year. Again, these laws have one primary running thing, theme, honoring distinctions. The last verse in our Parsha make it very clear the reason for the laws of Kashrut that were just shared. For I am Hashem your God, this is Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 44. For I am Hashem your God, you are to sanctify yourselves and be holy for I am holy, and you shall not contaminate yourselves through any crawling thing that creeps upon the earth. For I am Hashem, who elevates you from the land of Egypt to be a God to you. You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the animal, the bird, every living creature that swarms the water, and for every creature that crawls on the ground to distinguish between the contaminated and the pure, and between the creature that is to be eaten and that which may not be eaten. And so now, as we're returning to the land, the world seems to be headed with speed and determination in the other direction. I think you know where I'm going here. The lines are being blurred seemingly in the most intentional ways. Whereas 20 years ago, there was not one shed of scientific disagreement. Men were men and women were women. Now they're claiming that even that is not true. The Torah tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, A woman shall not wear that which belongs to a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to Hashem. And that's just cross-dressing. That's the lesser of the prohibitions. Leviticus in chapter 18 tells us, And a man shall not lie with a man as with a woman for this is an abomination. Things have deteriorated so rapidly that not only is homosexuality and cross-dressing held up as a positive value, but the definition, again, of what a man is and what a woman is have been so blurred and confused and it's being educated to an entire generation that there's really no difference at all. This is an idea which, of course, is absurd on its face, and any rational functioning mind can see that. And yes, of course, those that struggle with these forbidden desires should receive overwhelming love and compassion. But that doesn't mean that the action itself 
should be justified or condoned. Yet this is one of the most passionate movements in the West to take this vice and make it into a virtue. Perhaps there's something good in their intentions. We should always try to judge favor favorably. Perhaps they want to bring the world back to a unity and dissolve all of the boundaries that separate us. But this is not a holy unity. This is not the unified mankind that Hashem wants in the world. This is an abomination that doesn't bring light. On the contrary, it brings darkness. It brings the destruction of family and communities. It doesn't bring life, it brings death. Yet, there is hope. There is hope. There is a reason that I believe that all this darkness is coming into the world right now. Our sages tell us that before the sun rises, the darkness is greatest. For just as it seems like all the distinctions are being blurred and destroyed, the one greatest and holiest distinction in the world is taking place before our eyes. And what is that distinction? The return of the nation of Israel to the land of Israel. We're entrusted with the task of being a nation of priests, defenders and guardians of boundaries and of holiness. Yet for thousands of years, we were exiled from our land and we were unable to be a national beacon of light and holiness to the world. And fighting darkness with darkness never succeeds. The Labavitcher Rebbe would always say that a small candle can illuminate a world of darkness. Now, Israel, my friends, is that candle in the darkness. And with the return of the nation of Israel to the land of Israel, we can finally shine that light to the world to illuminate that holiness to all of mankind. And so here we are, about to embark on this sacred week of ups and downs and grief and joy. There's really no way to prepare yourself for it. But just as the dedication of the tabernacle brought great light to the world, it was punctuated with sadness and loss. And as we all know, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was a preview. It was a taste of the greatness that would be the temple in Jerusalem. And so too, the state of Israel is a precursor, a taste for redemption itself. And just as the nation grieved the tragic loss of their beloved holy Nadav and Avihu, we're mourning our beloved holy soldiers, our friends and our family who have lost their lives as well in the dedication of Israel. Every year that list grows more and more. Our sages say that when Nadav and Avihu died, Aaron, Aaron let out a wail of tears, pain, and grief. But then Moses turned to Aaron and with two words, he consoled him enough that Aaron was able to bear the pain and remain silent, right? The words, Aaron remained silent. And what were the two words that Moses used to console Aaron? Bekrovai Ekadesh, that Hashem sanctifies himself by those who are closest to him, those who are the most beloved. And why did those two words console Aaron? Because they made him realize that the death of his two sons were not for nothing. They had a purpose. They served to sanctify the name of God. And that partnering with Hashem in creation is an unimaginably powerful and sacred task. It's a dangerous task. And that the loss of Nadav and Avihu were, it was a part of the price we had to pay to create a dwelling place on this earth from which Hashem can shine his light to all of mankind. This Yom Azikaron, on Memorial Day, this coming Wednesday, 
as we mourn the death of our loved ones, we can be consoled by that very same truth, that the loss that we've suffered isn't for nothing, but it's a sacrifice that our nation has paid in order to partner with God in establishing the state of Israel. That through their deaths, Hashem was sanctified, and through their sacrifice, we've merited to return to the land. Hashem tells us through his holy prophet Yechezkel, Ezekiel, he says, and I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. He's saying that the exile itself, the diaspora is, is a desecration. And the nation shall know, Yechezkel goes on to say, and the nation shall know that I am God, says Hashem, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations and gather you in from among the countries and I will bring you to your own land. That's Yechezkel, chapter 36. I encourage you really to read the entire, entire chapter there because it's so important. So now, now please, my friends, let me end with a, um, a blessing, a prayer. Hashem, you're fulfilling the words of Yechezkel the prophet. You're fulfilling the words of your Torah and of your prophets. You're bringing us to our land to sanctify your name, to make it kadosh. Allow us, Hashem, to be vessels to channel your light to the world, vessels which are kadosh. Allow us to serve you in the way that you want to be served and love you in the way that you want to be loved. Through our return to the land, Hashem, please return harmony and balance and peace to a world that is lost and confused. Bring light to a world that's so full of darkness. Please, Hashem, bring peace and brotherhood to all of mankind so that, as the prophet says, nation will not lift up sword against nation and mankind will not learn war anymore. My friends, we're not there yet. The nation of Israel has been settling in and slowly but surely, God has been replacing our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh and we're beginning to shine. And with your help, it's, it's happening stronger and faster. And soon, we'll shine a powerful, beautiful, healing light to the entire world. Amen. Now, allow me to end the fellowship with my great joy, blessing you with the same blessing that Aaron the high priest blessed the nation of Israel for the very first time in this week's Torah portion. Yivarechecha Adonai May Hashem bless you and protect you. May Hashem shine His light and His countenance upon you. And may He give you peace. Amen. Thank you, my friends. Love you guys so much. Please be in touch. Stay connected. Shalom, shalom. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the Land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.